By the way, everyone knows this episode comes out on the second day of Christmas. Oh right? my gosh. For sure. This is the I'm season. I'm confused. Uh, Kathy, obviously you All right, Merry Christmas, right. everyone. See you next time. <laughs> oh, I thought, I thought we were done. <laughs> no. Oh, I don't know, Are we ever done? Oh okay, no, wait. What okay. was the number? 343. 343. Welcome to episode 343 of The Fascinating Podcast, a podcast about the fascinating people and events at the heart of our cultural conversations. I'm Kathy Kong. I'm Clay Morgan. And I'm J.R. Forsteros. On this week's show, we're talking about butts. What are they? Why are we so obsessed with them? Uh, in all seriousness, I am super excited about this episode. It is about a book called Butts, A Backstory by Heather Radke, who we're interviewing. Uh, and We've been trying to make this interview happen for a while. We had to reschedule it a couple of times. It was supposed to air like three weeks ago originally, but it's finally happened. Uh, Clay even reminded me to record it so we could actually show it to you. <laughs> show it to um, your ears. But before, yeah, show it show it to your ears so you could listen. Uh, but before all that, this is also our season finale. Again, we had different plans for our original season finale. We were going to talk about like Christmas and stuff, but, you know, best laid plans, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. So, Rip 2022. Uh, all of that is to say, how y'all feeling about this past season? It's been a good, it's been a good season of the podcast, I think. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was like, what is this? Uh, like, what is this expression, Kathy? This long pause. I know, listeners. It's sometimes I think it is unfortunate that you do not get to experience my facial expressions. <laughs> Despite people being concerned They're, that I use Botox, there is no <laughs> loss of ability to make weird faces. It's true. So that that expression was like, I know I was here for several recordings of the podcast. I just, I feel like the last couple of months have been like, I don't know. 2022 feels a lot like 2020 still to mm-hmm. me. Yeah, that definitely uh, probably is something most of our listeners can relate to. I'm thinking it coming to, you know, these, <laughs> this is always like such a time for reflection as you close out one year and begin anew. And it's like, just trying to look back. It's, 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 it's as much of a dark tunnel behind as ahead in some cases, I think. But uh, we had some great conversations, some great episodes. I thought I really enjoyed, um, obviously the, the times we got to focus on history, which was a lot of our conversations. We we're always putting things in the historical context. JR, what stands out for you? I mean, obviously, when Kathy took over the podcast completely and kicked mm-hmm. all of us off for the Voices of mm-hmm. Lament episode, that was that was a terrific one. Um, talking to Alex Schwartzman about the the war in Ukraine, I thought was really poignant. Uh, I really enjoyed getting to talk with Carolyn Hayes about her book, uh, A Girlhood, and talking about transgender, uh, parenting transgender kids. And of course, like anytime we get to have Scott Poole on it is a delight for me. I love that dude. And so the, the you know, the horror episode was was terrific, too. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's I will say this. Listeners may have picked up on this or not. There was a time mostly before Kathy joined us, when if someone wanted to come on and talk about something, we just said yes. We didn't care. We were just so <laughs> delighted to have a guest. And I really feel like we've gotten to the place where we get to be selective about who we have on, and we get to invite on 
people that we genuinely want to create conversations with. And and that's a pretty cool privilege. We're, cu- we're curating so, um, conversation. That's what I mean, right? And it's looking back over the last several seasons of our show, um, I just, I really like the kind of work we're getting to do and I'm looking forward to what's ahead. So yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. Um, but, but I think it's worth it for episodes like the one, you know, we get to do today. So remember that, remember when we interviewed um, that author, uh, Matt McAlottis about some of the things he's been working yeah. on. I keep hoping we get to have him back sometime. Really cool. <laughs> You'll have to refresh my memory. Who is this person? Have we met him? He's you Greek. Haven't. You haven't. Uh, I, I have met him. Yeah. You know, um, we also, I want to give a shout out to Aaron Kretzman, who has been just engineering the Woo-hoo! heck out of this show for a long time. Aaron got a new job, and uh, he actually sent me a picture from his new workplace, which is the Honda Center in Anaheim. So that's where, like, the the, the uh, Anaheim hockey team plays and where the big concerts come through. And he's, he's like, here's my picture from work, and it's, like, the ice. They're getting ready for tonight's hockey game. Um, and he's going to – I think it's, like, the head audio engineer at the Honda Center. Um, so just super congrats to Aaron. Super proud of him. We love that guy. He's been just a huge, huge part of this show for the entire run for a decade now. So good to Give see great things. Give him a pay raise. Yeah, I think That's you right. can ask after your uh, two weeks uh, probation period ends, right? As soon as you get your key fob, you can ask for a pay raise. <laughs> I think that's how it works. I think she meant for our yeah, show. That's yeah. What I so. So Aaron, you hear that? Once you've completed your two weeks. <laughs> oh, Clay. Uh, so anyone traveling over the break, Kathy, it sounds like your whole crew is going to be home. Yeah. So we don't travel over the break. We stay home. We hunker down. It sounds like there's going to be a blizzard. Rumor has it. I don't know. We'll see. I don't know when six inches of snow in the Midwest became a blizzard. Yeah. That's whatever. what? That's a snowstorm. That's I know. <laughs> I was like six inches. Um, so yeah, we're going to stay put and hopefully it won't be so bad that we can still see family, but other than that, nothing planned. How about you, Clay? No, we're we're staying uh, we're staying here. Um, yeah, the, we'll we'll see where twenty twenty three takes us. But uh, the plan is to be in Dallas for the holidays, and uh, I don't know, maybe have a little hangout with Foresteros clan. I think uh, play play a long crunchy right at the other end of the train line. Just saying, board game day. Yeah, it'll be fun. Have we talked about the board game that we all play together, Clay? We did show? after we played it the first time. Time Stories. Okay. Yeah, it was stories, very fun. Yeah. Maybe we're going to get into some Dead of Winter. Maybe some maybe some mm. zombies, Kathy, and a little co-op mm. where you're all together in an apocalypse until all of a sudden one of you is not and you're working to sabotage the others. Oh, it's just... Oh, I love sabotage. That's funny. It's... I mean, this podcast has trained me for that. <laughs> which one of you? Which one of you is going to try to betray at any time? Um, no. In all seriousness, yeah, we are really looking forward to celebrating the holiday. Obviously, taking a little bit of a break from recording. We don't have a plan for exactly when we're going to be back yet, but it's probably going to be like February, March. So stay tuned. Um, but you, you should also just know that when we go on break, I think listeners know this by now, but right. But when we go on break, we're using that time a lot to like figure out who we want on for the new season, you know, do, do our research that way, kind of plan out what we want to do. Um, and waiting until you listen so, to yeah. every episode we've just done in recent months, we're not coming back until you finish them all, Jim. <laughs> yeah. So, 
anyway, I think without uh, without any further ado, we should probably get over to our interview. No answers or buts about it. Um, she's hey, um, she is a contributing editor and reporter at Radio Lab. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that little radio show up and coming. Yeah. Um, she also writes essays, criticism, and reported pieces for Paris Review Daily, The Believer, Guernica, Topic, Long Reads, The White Review, and others. Uh, and, of course, she just released her first book, Butts, A Backstory, which is, I've been told it's officially a micro-history, but as you can see, it's a pretty big topic. So, um, all, okay, listen, all joking aside, this book is great. It's so readable. It's so fun. It's incredibly thought-provoking. As I think both of you will attest, I kept messaging you when I was first working my way through it. Like, is anyone else reading this yet? Oh my gosh, this was so good. Like, oh, I, and I told Heather, I was like, I've, I've, I've already made this my Christmas gifting book that I'm sending to like all of my, all my Christmas people because I just love it so much. So um, it is terrific. And uh, Heather was very gracious with us. She has had a very hectic schedule, both with a new baby, as she mentions, and then of course having a book released. And so we had to do quite a bit of shuffling and juggling of schedules to get her on the show, but she stuck with us and and made it work. And we were really happy that she did because uh, it turned out to be a great interview. So let's head over to our conversation with Heather Redfield. Heather you welcome to the Fascinating Podcast. It is such an honor to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so we always ask our first-time guests this. Uh, besides butts, in your case, obviously, what fascinates you, uh, you know, generally in life right now? What are you fascinated by? Well, so I just I just had a baby uh, not so long ago. She's about five months old. And so I've been very fascinated by baby sleep. I'm kind of in a very famously difficult time for baby sleep. It's actually just passed because we just sleep trained her, which was... Um, Fascinating in its own way, actually, but I've, <laughs> I've, uh, I've been very interested in the question of whether or not babies dream, and there's some interesting science that suggests they maybe don't, but then a lot of people now uh, are starting to say they actually do dream. Surely they dream. I mean, I have dogs. I see them dreaming, and why wouldn't babies do the same? <laughs> Wait, are you equating your dogs with her baby? Any living creature. Well, it's... It's kind of a I, I think it's, it's not he's not totally wrong because the reason the scientists think that the babies maybe don't dream is that they think that dreams come with language. It's sort of like a Lacanian like, you know, with the word comes the, you know, the unconscious mind in this new way. But I think dogs is kind of a good point because dogs also don't have human language, obviously. But and, they have language. You know, Oh well, that's true. Maybe that's a good point. Maybe they maybe they don't dream either until they get their language or dog dream. You can have dreams are visual, right? You don't need words and language in a dream. Well, I think that speaks to something that's very interesting about baby research is because babies can't talk. It's actually, I think, probably quite hard to know if they're dreaming and if they're doing. <laughs> Although now, I think I think since like the fMRI and stuff, like there's been a little bit of like it looks, you know, the the brainwave patterns suggest that they are dreaming. That's what I was going to ask about is, yeah, do, do we know enough? And I know that like dreams are this whole like final frontier of neuroscience or whatever, but like, yeah, do we even know enough about what brains look like in dream state to be able to tell that? But, I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know either. I just, I think it's like, um, we, like, I suppose you probably have to be a little careful. Like remember those early studies that were like, Oh, like the person playing tennis, their brain looks like this. And then they ask a person in a coma to play tennis. And they're like, Oh, it looks the same. But like, it turned out maybe that wasn't actually 
actually right. real. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So like maybe they don't. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. I love that. <laughs> well, while we have you here, Heather, <laughs> I want to know why a book on butts? Yeah. So um, I sort of get interested in this topic because when I was a young woman, like in when I was a teenager, I grew up in a white, I'm a white woman. I grew up in a really white suburb of Lansing, Michigan, where the beauty ideal was definitely like Kate Moss, super thin, buttless. And I have a big butt and my mom has a big butt. And I come from like a Italian American family with lots of big butted ladies in it. And I felt a lot of shame about my butt. And um, I always like to point out though, it's not, I didn't feel like profound, intense, like every day I was feeling horrible. And I think that's important because I was interested when I was writing this book in what I call mundane shame, which is this idea that like, I think a lot of people, a lot of women carry around some idea about their body. That's just like there, it's constantly like, oh, there's this, this thing that's a little bit wrong with me. And I was interested in investigating that feeling and where that feeling came from. And for me, that feeling was about my butt. And I think also, interestingly, the beauty ideal of butts in mainstream America changed pretty profoundly from the time I was a teenager to, you know, the time I was like 35 when I started writing this book. And the big butt kind of came to mean a whole other thing in mainstream culture. And so I was interested in kind of the symbolism of the butt and what had happened over that period of time, but then also the deeper history about where our ideas about butts and therefore kind of our ideas about bodies come from. That's um, fascinating to me as an Asian American woman who has often joked about the lack of butts in our family. Um, I call it a thut, where the <laughs> thigh and butt just simply, wow. it's like one space. There's no definition. And the one who broke that was my daughter, who is a dancer. And so she's. I mean, she's got a beautiful dancer body and she actually has a butt. And so I'm always laughing at how my mom has no, sorry, mom, has no butt. It's literally <laughs> like just flat like a chalkboard. And then there's her granddaughter who dances. And yet um, I resonate with this that, that mundane shame. So maybe you could also write like another book about that. That would be also fascinating. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, one of the things I was sort of trying to point out, I mean, in the conclusion, I say something like this book was about butts, but it could have been about anything. And I, that's sort of what I mean is like, this was like my slice of it, but mm -hmm. I think any body part, any kind of, I mean, I've even thought about like writing an essay about why I felt shame about liking Enya when I was in in high school. You know, like that there's like something about these kind of little feelings of shame that I think are really interesting and that you really could explore pretty deeply and, on any subject. And they're adjacent to oftentimes probably very significant levels of shame too, or just, you know, what I, and, and we're talking also two different eras. It's interesting between pre-social media, pre-internet and, and post and what's happened culturally I was, I had real low body image, real low self-esteem when I was, especially when I was young. I remember in eighth grade, this guy pulled me over to like the older kid's table and he was like, Clay, we're in the buttless club. And it was like, yeah, I'm a beanpole. Like, don't call it out in front of all the girls in high school. But uh, that's an interesting way to think about like levels of shame. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, certainly like 
you know, high levels of shame should certainly be investigated. But I almost, it's like, I was interested in these things that kind of go below notice. But it's also so interesting because I've now talked a lot about the book and so many of us have these kind of moments in high school of cruelty. And I feel bad for the girl who said this like one specific thing about my butt that's in the book because I keep like talking about it. But so I also like to say that like, you know, surely I don't even remember it, but I'm sure I've been on all sides of that, those kinds of stories as we all have. And, you know, there's just something kind of a way that we can be cruel about bodies at that age, but also kind of throughout our lives that I think is really worth investigating and thinking about where those ideas come from too. You know, like when we want, when people are cruel, where, where are their ideas about like bodies and ordering of bodies and ranking them? Where do those ideas come from? Just look out bullies. That person might grow up and become a writer. (laughs) (laughs) You take your revenge Uh, 40 years later. (laughs) So, uh, you know, pretty quickly, Heather, a major theme of this book became how white beauty standards are engaged in this push and pull with blackness. Uh, And I'm curious, you know, was that something, you know, we're about to we're about to talk about Cermix here in a moment, obviously. But, you know, was that something that you already sort of knew in the back of your mind based on being a child of the 90s when the era of the booty song rose to prominence? Or was that something that really became a central pole of your book? or essential theme of your book, like as you wrote, like, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what that, how, how quickly race became such a, a central part of the story? Yeah. So I, I started the actual writing part, um, you know, like the story kind of goes back to high school, but I didn't really turn it into a book for 20 years. And then I, 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 the kind of the first section of the writing I took on was this part about the bustle um, because I had done a little bit of research and I pretty quickly found that there was a, a kind of rumor, I guess, like in the historical record that the bustle, which is this kind of strange 19th century garment that um, makes your, I mean, it basically just makes you look like you have a big butt. It, that there was this idea like that that garment had been um, modeled after the body of a woman named Sarah Bartman, who was an indigenous South African woman who had been brought up from South Africa and displayed as a freak show in London in the early 19th century. And then once she died, the um, the French scientist who did her autopsy used that autopsy as evidence for race, like very racist science that, you know, suggested black women were less human than white people. And that also that black women were hypersexual. So the big butt became equated with hypersexuality that way. And I had known that story of Sarah Bartman from, you know, like a class I took in college. But um, when I saw that link made between the bustle and the, uh, and her body, I was really interested in it and wanted to kind of learn more. So I think I had always known that the, that, you know, any, any exploration of the butt in Western culture was going to be about blackness and whiteness to some extent. Um, But really quickly, you know, I, I started to kind of dive into that historic, like history of the 19th century. And that became very foundational for the, for a lot of the work I did in the book. I'm so fascinated by the whole connection to the bustle because even though that has long gone out of fashion, it has come back in different ways. I mean, there's there's surgery. I mean, women are getting surgery to make their butts bigger. And I was just thinking, when was the last time I 
encountered that word, like a, a bustle. And it was my wedding dress where you okay. can bustle the train and how I'm just thinking about that, like, oh, how strange. There's this this whole symbol of a white, pure dress, and then you bustle it, and the connection to sexuality, and, oh, I'm going to have to think about this for a long, a bit yeah. more. I mean, yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, it's this Victorian undergarment. There's a lot of other theories for why the bustle existed, but I think you can, like, especially those those kind of bustles that mm-hmm. were popular at the end of the 19th century, which are a little bit more extreme probably yes, than the wedding dress was. Um, they re- that really, ha- to me at least, has this visual echo with the body of Sarah Bartman. And, and yeah, I mean, all of these things repeat themselves throughout the 20th century in interesting ways. And certainly in the 21st, that kind of putting on of this stereotype of Black femininity, you know, that we see that with Miley Cyrus in 2013 at the VMAs or, you know, to some extent with Kim Kardashian. And like you say, I mean, I think that the Brazilian butt lift has become super, super popular. And that's a really, it's really complicated. Like in some ways, I feel like a a way to talk about that and think about that is in the history of plastic surgery and just these ways that women augment their bodies and people augment their bodies and, um, and, I don't think we can sort of totally say that that's like a horrible, bad thing to do, but it's definitely a very dangerous surgery. It's one of the most dangerous surgeries there is. And a lot of them are not done by people who are all the way qualified to do them. Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> JR, before we go to to the transition you're talking about with, with uh, the famous song. So it is, is it this ideal that existed, the Kate Moss, the, this is fashion, this is beauty. Was that, Gatekeepery was it to was it a way to keep black bodies out of beauty and fashion uh, until a turning point happened or have you come across anything around that? I mean, I think I mean I th- I think there's so much to say about that. Like the the history of the like sort of rectangle body is like one way people talk about it. It's like definitely goes back to the 1910s and 1920s with Coco Chanel and Paul Poré and the flapper as this ideal. Um, you know, it's an it's a body that I think reads as androgynous. It reads as um, controlled. Like there's this interesting idea of that this historian Valerie Steele talks about that. You know, in the 20s, we sometimes think about women kind of having liberated themselves from the corset and the bustle and the petticoat, but actually what was happening was that the corset went from the outside of the body to the inside of the body and that women had to start to control themselves in a new way. You know, the diet and exercise comes in in a whole different way. Like plastic surgery is invented. The bathroom scale is invented. Fad diets are invented. This is, these are things that aren't really happening in the 19th century in the same way, because the way that a body is controlled is you buy these like cages and stuff and you can make your body look how it's, how fashion says it should look. So I think, I think always what's happening in the 20th century is that ideal is the super thin ideal is kind of always being returned to, and it never really goes away. Even in the fifties and stuff, there's like a a lot of control that's being exerted. And so I think in the nineties, that's what's happening too, is that there's, there's quite a lot of control and that the people who are controlling, who are the controllers for a long time are, white people and that their ideal is a is a white ideal that's kind of coming up from from the history of basically deciding even what whiteness is um 
And then, yeah, then there is this change in the 90s that's interesting. And it's it's not just a change of body ideal, but it's also a little bit, it's interesting how um, the gaze of whiteness kind of shifts. And, you know, the, bigger, the biggest consumers, some people say, of hip-hop music in the 90s were white men. And that's part of why the the that hip hop becomes the dominant form of music by the early 2000s is it's, you know, the demographics of the United States are changing pretty dramatically too. But what's really selling all those records is that white men are listening to them. And then, you know, crucially for our topic, watching them on MTV. So, so let's talk yeah, about and, that. Oh, go ahead, JR. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, we, you know, the, the, the nineties were sort of the era of the booty song in hip hop, you know, everyone from LL Cool J to, of course, uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot. And I mean, gosh, Baby Got Back is one of those songs that has like escaped all earthly bounds and has just become etched in the like pop culture pantheon of history. You know, where like you can you can walk into a room and go, oh, my God. And like just stop there. And most of the people in the room will know exactly what you're talking about, you know, just from the the way you intone an otherwise pretty common phrase. Um, and and so I, I'm so fascinated by the deep read you did of the song, of the history of it, a history of the music video even, and the way that if we take Sir Mix-a-Lot at his word, you know, he was trying to create this empowerment anthem that was resisting the white gaze and celebrating black as beautiful um, but you quote uh, Dr. Kyra Grant, who calls this song an empowering misogyny. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about that category a little bit and maybe where you see that at work? Yeah, her, her name is Kira Gaunt, actually, just th- so that we get it right. There. I am so sorry. No, no, no. It's <laughs> yes, okay. Kira Gaunt. And okay. she's, she's great. She was one of my favorite people I interviewed. Um, yeah, so... Sir Mix a Lot, super like, you know, this song is was hugely popular at the time, still hugely popular. Although I will say, I think we're all probably old enough that this was a part of our youth to some extent. But my I worked with a couple of research assistants who are in college now who were not so <laughs> familiar. And I was talking about Sad. feeling old. And they were like, they were like, huh, so Beyonce was around in like 2000. Wow. <laughs> even with all the sampling, like, that's weren't even born. <laughs> like, it's like wow. anyway, that's not what we're talking about. But um, so, yeah, so I think it's absolutely true that Sir Mix-a-Lot sees this and saw it then as a kind of empowerment. He tells the story of its origin was that his girlfriend at the time was a, a non-white woman. I think she's Dominican. She um, And she felt like she had to hide her big butt. And she co- she was a model and she couldn't get any jobs because she had a big butt. That's what the, the sort of story of it was. And um, he wrote this song kind of trying to celebrate her and saying, this is crazy. Like you should hire my girlfriend as a model essentially. But even in that you can sort of see it's, I mean, I I don't think we should totally, like, I don't think we should totally write it off as like, it was misogynistic. And so like, like forget about it or something. I mean, I do think he was trying to do something. It was just a very limited thing he was trying to do. He was saying white men shouldn't say what's beautiful you know, I, I should say what's beautiful and I'm a black man and my friends and I like big butts and we cannot lie. And that's <laughs> what we're talking about. So, um, but as Kira Gaunt points out, you know, it's, it's still the male gaze. It's like, obviously there's so much about the video and the song that is, you know, 
totally objectifying women. And that's supposedly why it was banned from MTV at first, was because MTV was in this moment of trying to deal with the fact that they were, you know, rampantly objectifying women in every possible way. (laughs) And it kind of was like, they obviously didn't, I don't know, I mean... It, it, they didn't mean it because it didn't, <laughs> I watched a lot of MTV when I was when I was you know in those years and there was plenty of objectifying happening. But their rule was something like um, that they you had to show the whole per- woman. You couldn't cut off her like like there were these videos that were only showing women from the neck down. Um, and I think the thing that like kind of put put the like made the standards change was that video by Warrant that was called Cherry Pie. Maybe you guys remember it. It is pretty bad. <laughs> it's, um, I am familiar. And yeah, so so the thing is, it's like the baby got back. There's so much in the video that's objectifying in really straightforward ways, including the fact that like the woman that they're talking about, she's like on a plat like a sort of like a museum platform. Like she's almost like literally being turned into an object and like is spinning around and being looked at by men. So, and then the song obviously is about like what this man finds sexy and, you know, he wants to change the beauty ideal so that what he finds sexy is the thing that is in the magazines basically. Um, And in a weird way, he got exactly what he wanted. I mean, he's like that limited standard of, changed is what happened it's just like the the critique that dr gaunt was was offering was never brought into the frame you know it was never about let's make all bodies beautiful or let's think about what's good for women it was always like we'll sort of adjust what we find like what mainstream media says is sexy but the problem is we're still operating that same paradigm of yeah, there's a there's a particular set of bodies we find sexy, i.e. marketable, i.e. desirable. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's kind of important to say that because, you know, it's been an interesting past 10 years. Like, there has been more interest in, diff- you know, varying standards of beauty, but when it comes down to it, not that much has changed. Like, there's a lot of, um, you know, it's not Kate Moss, but there is still a an ideal that's actually very hard to achieve. Like even in the big budded ideal is it's not many people have that kind of body and it's in some ways even harder to get because it's like, you know, it's, there's a limited amount you can do from exercise and it's still like a very narrow mold. So even as there's been more body acceptance and people I think are, are genuine, you know, I think there is more interest in that than there's ever been. And part of that is because of social media and there's like more kind of, niches that are you know in mainstream culture than there ever have been before but at the same time the mainstream beauty ideal is still very narrow yeah and it's it's and i would argue it's still very white right it's it's within a construct so even the 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 surgery still requires very narrow waist <laughs> and yeah. um and when we look at kind of the the image people think of Kim Kardashian, who is, you know, arguably, um, she's a white woman trying to have a black woman's body is some of the critique. So I I appreciate you kind of uh, socially locating yourself and where this kind of interest and uh, the mundane shame has come from white consumption of this kind of work and 
the powers that be still white, but um, you in the book cite Toni Morrison's term, play dark. So can you talk with us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Toni Morrison wrote a book called Playing in the Dark that's about, I mean, it's about literature, but it's about the ways that white people kind of, I mean, it's basically about cultural appropriation and um, that term. And then actually the term, the, the sort of phrase that I think I sort of was always returning to was um, this, this one by Greg Tate, the cultural critic, uh, everything but the burden. And I think we see that in Kim Kardashian. We see that in the bustle. We see that in the kind of interest in the like what white people saw as the black butt in the in the 2000s and then the 2010s obviously in the 90s in a different kind of way there like that a lot has been written about white men and cultural appropriation in the 90s and i think this is the the bustle in some ways offers us like a really useful it's almost a metaphor in a in a way i mean it really happened but it's almost like a a little st- play that kept getting put on, which is like these white women were putting on a bustle, mm-hmm. which was the a kind of mimic of Sarah Bartman's body, and then they were taking it off. And it's I, I would say that both of those acts are really important when we're talking about cultural appropriation or this everything but the burden idea that like that it's the privilege of being able to put it on and then take it off that I think is is really at the part of this very white gesture of like, I'm going to play around with what I perceive to be sexy black bodies. And I'm going to take what I want from that. And then when I'm done with it, I'm going to move on. And the kind of the figure I saw, you know, I, I talk about the most in the book about this is Miley Cyrus, who in 2013, she does this performance at the VMAs. Yeah. She's <laughs> says she's twerking. She kind of is like dabbling in this idea of black femininity that is the hypersexual black woman. It's a stereotype that's, you know, 200, 300, 400 even years old. And um, she does it because she had been Hannah Montana for for however long it was, 10 years or something. And she needed to, she wanted to have a different image. She wanted to like, quote unquote, grow up. And she wanted to show that she was a sexy woman. And this is, so she used you know, stereotypes of black femininity and a very limited understanding of a very interesting African-American vernacular dance to do it. And then when she was done with it, when she'd like caused a stir and had a controversy and gone on tour, she, um, she stopped doing it and she like, like got beachy highlights and got like all like Laurel Canyon out and was, you know, and, and I think that b- both of those, though, both of those things were kind of markers of whiteness. The, the ability and willingness to play around with these stereotypes and then this kind of like casting them aside. So as you considered the butt for all of this research cycle that was, and I, I love getting into a topic and you start to find the unusual quirky tidbits and things like that. But one of the things that always strikes me during a research process like this is how you start to realize parts of language around the topic in a, in a way that isn't that isn't obvious until you realize it. So, for example, I was doing research on death or ghosts or hauntings, and all of a sudden, all these turns of phrases started to, I started to see the origins of them and how they connected. So, I'm just really curious, as a researcher on this topic in a, in a, in a historical way, 
What did, what did you find around the language and the way we've talked about it, either currently or throughout history? Was there anything in, the, in your research that struck you like that? Yeah, totally. So I think even the word we're using, like I use the word but because I think it's like, it's what I call it. And um, I also think it's kind of funny. And whenever I say it, people get kind of like, oh, what? <laughs> um, but I think even that speaks to this idea that like I realized pretty quickly, which is that we sort of don't have a, a like, quote unquote, correct word for it. Like a lot of people are like, no, it's buttocks. But like, when was the last time you said that word? <laughs> like, I mean, I think if you're like an aerobics instructor. Or a high school principal. Word, yeah. I'm a yoga instructor and I'll still say your butt. Yeah. Or glutes. I think that's what glutes. We, glutes. Yeah. Because if you, that maybe that's what you mean is glutes. If you're your rear. Um, old people, I always hear like your rear. <laughs> Well, so, the, but the whole thing is like, there's no kind of proper w word. And I was really interested in that because it felt like um, it spoke to this, this whole idea that I was getting at, which is like that we kind of don't look at it straightforwardly and that there's all the stuff we don't see about it. And we have a really triangulated relationship with our butts. But then there's a few other things about language that I think are super interesting. So f I looked at like many, many fashion magazines for throughout the 19th and 20th century and 21st century. And most fashion magazines don't, I mean, really no fashion magazines I could find, even, even like non-white fashion magazines use the word, they all use like derriere or backside until about 1998 or 1997 when this thing happens where Jennifer Lopez sort of changes the game and how we think about and talk about buds. But it's like such an interesting linguistic turn it's like they couldn't quite bring themselves to say it and I think it's funny they use the word dairy I was gonna say so dairyere like, it's like so embarrassing that they did that I think and then that when I was doing the buns of steel research I, I started to really think about all these things these like phrase of like like hard ass and kick your butt like that we have all these kind of like work related phrases around the butt that's like um I think are super interesting that are all about like how you'll have a hard butt if you are a hard worker, <laughs> which is weird. But I mean, that was sort of like, that's why Buns of the Steel was a little bit brilliant was because it was, it was um, kind of, I think a little unconsciously tapping into a really 80s, 70s, 80s neoliberal idea about hard work. But someone who's a hard ass is also like a driving kind of domineering person, right? Yeah, but yeah, they get the job done. <laughs> they do get the job done. Man, I can't imagine what the um, social media algorithms are doing with you targeting marketing this season after what your search history must be like after this book research. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's always a thing for journalism. Journalists is, I, you know, I was doing this research alongside, you know, I was like doing a show for Radiolab about the placenta. And I was just like, I kind of love how like the... Um, you, f you feel yourself messing with the algorithms. Like, they can't figure you out. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> Especially it's, it's, it's butts and placenta. <laughs> yeah, it's like, wait, what is this lady up to? I don't know. Who is she? And what is she doing? <laughs> Who are her friends? <laughs> they don't know. They can't um, figure it out. Well, Heather, thanks, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, where do you like to point listeners to follow your work? Oh, I'm on I'm on Instagram. I got off the the Twitter. I wasn't any good at it anyway, so I was it was I'm not that good at Instagram either. It's just pictures of my baby and pictures of my book. But, and pictures but of your baby with your book. Yeah, that's true. I sometimes do some cross contamination. <laughs> 
Again, play with the algorithm. And what's your what's yeah, your exactly. handle? Well, it's oh, I think it's Rad H Radkey. All right. Nice. Yeah. Uh, well, again, congrats on the book, listeners. That is butts a backstory. Uh, as as intellectual as this conversation has been, I just want to say, while Heather's with us, the writing is so accessible. It is a fun, funny, surprising, challenging book. I I really am giving it to a lot of people for Christmas this year because I just uh, it was such a good read. Um, I I know if you enjoyed this interview, you will absolutely love the book. So Heather, thank you again so much for being with us. It's been great to have you on our season finale of our podcast. Oh, thank you so much, and thanks thanks for having me. Just just feels right that this is the caboose of the season. Oh, stop. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I'm surprised you got that far with that more fun. <laughs> hey. Awesome. Thanks, Heather. Thanks so much, okay. you guys. Bye. Wow, that was a great interview. Um, before we wrap up for the season, I got to hear what's fascinating, y'all. I need some good stuff to take with me into the break. So, uh, Kathy, what, what's been fascinating you lately? Okay, so I finished a book called The Book Eaters by— Heard of it. I don't know how to pronounce her first name. Sunyi? Sunyi Dean. I cannot remember where how this book came across my attention, but— uh, it, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's about this, uh, these families that live on books. That's how they live. They eat books. Literally. They literally eat books. So when I started the book, it was a little bit like vampires, except instead of blood, they're eating books. And then, um, it's also a book about empowerment and, um, about women and their place in society and power relationship. There's some body gore. There's abuse. There's definitely violence. But I I just found it fascinating. I loved it. I usually don't, like these types of books are not the like, oh, I'm going to read this book. But this one I had saved. I was on the wait list at the library and I could not stop reading the book about book eaters. I'm super interested in this book. You had me at body horror, so. <laughs> well, um, you know, I mean, beings that eat books. So there's, yeah. you know, like how do they do that? They have yeah. special teeth. Wow. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Play what you got. Uh, have you guys heard of BritBox? No. Is it a food or clothing it's a streaming service. <laughs> oh. None of the above. So, no. you know, there's a million streaming services. And, and remember when we cut from cable and then we had just like Netflix. Now these days it's like we're paying more than we ever did for our cable bill probably with all the streaming so services. So, you know, I kind of through seasons try to experiment and target marketing. They have put BritBox in front of me because I am the PBS guy. I do love watching murder mysteries, right? A ton. And uh, they even had a recent campaign where it was like only murders in the village. And I thought it was actually like a spinoff, but it was actually just marketing like, hey, if you like murder mysteries, it's every show. So all of the old Agatha Christie's all the way up through all this modern stuff. So finally, uh, earlier this month, I went ahead and I, I dropped one of my streams and I picked up this one. And um, I really enjoy it. 
So if you, like me, do find yourself from time to time interested in like a British, you know, murder mystery, um, there are all kinds of them. There are closed series. I just finished one last night called Karen Peary, which um, was actually pretty good. Three episode arc. I watched uh, Hugh Laurie, the guy from House and other things. He did a he did a redo of Why Didn't They Ask Evans, a famous Agatha Christie, which I watched, but I was like, man, it was really boring, right? Um, and I'm finding some other new stuff, too, that's cool. It's some that's quirky, offbeat. So, yeah, if you want to, like, just enter into that space, and I've talked about Thursday Murder Club a ton, right? Um, it's kind of just, like, all there. There are decades worth of stuff, but I've enjoyed BritBox, and I will continue to enjoy all of the programming there. Mm-hmm. I'm looking it up, going, oh, there's this whole section on gardening, edible gardens, life in a cottage garden. Mm. Oh. Yeah, very British. <laughs> what about you, Zara? Uh, so this is a book that I actually originally picked up when it came out, and then it just sort of sat on my to-read list until uh, I noticed a bunch of uh, the end of the year best books of 2022 list coming out. And this one was on almost every single one I looked at. So I thought, well, better go ahead and read it. And sure enough, it is as good as advertised. It's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which is actually a Macbeth quote. Uh, it's by Gabrielle Zevin. And it is a book about friendship and video game design. Um, it's terrific. It is about these three friends who two of them meet as childhood friends. One of them they encounter in college who came of age in the late 90s. So they're playing PC games like King's Quest and Doom and those. And they decide during their time at um, Ivy League schools on the East Coast to start designing video games themselves. And they end up starting a video game company. And it's just kind of one of those slice of lifey kind of games that follow these people through the twists and turns of their lives uh, across several decades. And yeah, it's great. It's got some really good meditations on vulnerability and on friendship and on authenticity. And it's also just like a really, really well-written book. So uh, quick read. I think I, I think I burned through it in like four or five days. Uh, it was one of those books that I kept staying up late to read, not because the plot was particularly like uh, thrilling, but just because it was so well written. So, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. I, I, I yes. was just in my head thinking, I want to read this, and I'm probably going to get the audio version. But then you said it actually kept you wanting to read with your eyeballs. Is that just you? It did. Or, uh, I don't know. Would it lend itself well to the audio form? I think it probably would. I'm, I'm curious. I'm going to look into this one. Yeah, I'm, but I really like it. I'm yeah. placing a hold. All right. So. Uh, Before we head out for the season, uh, Clay, I know you're going to be busy packing boxes and all kinds of stuff. You uh, trying to publish anything in that interim time that you want Uh, folks to be looking out for? Man, I will just say, uh, just stay tuned to Medium. If you haven't connected with me on Medium.com, that's the easiest way. I'm Clay Morgan, PA. I've got a a long um, nonfiction piece that I need to wrap up and just get up there because I got people who are following me based on old stuff and I'm just behind. So I'm going to try to get that piece out here in the next, in the next month. And then, yeah, big changes coming probably when we return with new episodes. Uh, I'll have some really wild updates for everybody. 
Nice. And Kathy, I know you're threatening to write about your recent trip to <laughs> Jordan. Anything else that we should be on the lookout for? Don't threaten me with a good article. <laughs> no, I, that's definitely what I'm thinking about and uh, will try to sit down in the next two, three weeks to write about. How about you, JR? Nice. Uh, I've got a couple of fun things brewing. Um, my super gay roller derby article went up at Sojourners, so I'm very excited about that. It's what the church can learn from women's sports about being spaces for liberation for both women and queer persons. Uh, so I'm excited about that. I've gotten some good feedback so far. And then y'all may know I have a, a quasi-defunct horror podcast called Don't Split Up. And does, I've had the Kathy, opportunity Kathy, did you to, know that? Does Kathy know I this? I did not know that. This might be like B- There you BK. go. That's... that's how long it's been defunct. Um, (laughs) Like a lot of great horror franchises, we've gone through some cast changes (laughs) and had some struggle. Uh, So, um, but I have had the opportunity to do some interviews with directors of some low budget, small horror films lately. And uh, also some stars, including a guy who got his break in Mad Max 2 under uh, the, the great George Miller, so I got to interview uh, Vernon Wells. I got to interview a guy named Dave Sheridan, nice. who has been in all kinds of stuff, including, you know, he's got to start at SNL back in the 70s. So um, both of those guys are super fun to interview. And it's really fun to talk to people who are making these very low budget films because you're not making those to get rich, right? You're making those to earn a living and for the love of the craft. And so I've, I've started putting those up in the don't split up horror feed. So people can go listen to those and watch the movies if they want, but it's just been a lot of fun. Super fun. I had no idea, but it makes total sense. Yeah, and we're working on bringing the podcast back because y'all know I love horror so much. But in the interim, there's some fun interviews there to to get you through, including one with a director of a movie about a mutant priest who goes to war against death metal. So, you know, that was right in my house. And we got to have a really... Wait, is that... Before we started the interview... Fiction or or documentary? (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Who can tell? I told him before we started the interview, I said, I just want you to know that my day job is I'm a pastor and I used to be in a metal band. And he was kind of like... Oh, okay. So we actually had a really, really good interview about sort of the way both faith and the metal scene can be hospitable and the way they can both become mm. gatekeepy and exclusionary. And 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 one of the things I really enjoyed about his movie, which is the reason I wanted to talk to him, was how much nuance there actually was in a movie that certainly did not require nuance. <laughs> right. You don't go to a you don't go to a B movie called Death to Metal expecting nuance, any kind of nuance yeah. but and and yet there was little so, did he know you personify the venn diagram of his art that's right i said i said you made this movie specifically for me and i deeply appreciate <laughs> it so so anyway yeah that's Very the kind niche. of that's the kind of stuff you know when we just like just like on fascinating when we do interviews we try not, try not to just talk about the same thing that all 800 other people are going to mm-hmm. talk to him about mm-hmm. so um yeah anyway so that's that's all that stuff so cool cool uh, that brings us to the end of our season uh, on next week's show, we will be on break. So if you don't see one in the feed, don't be surprised. But we will be back next year with more great content. Until then, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, uh, and thanks for being on this this uh, season with us. We look forward to being back with you next year. Bye.